And there's these paradigm shifts that we talk about are really necessary to see neighborhood or city transformation. And one of them is really moving from this kind of um, idea of scarcity to one of abundance. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have a lens that says that there just is enough. There's enough in your community. There's enough in your city. We can't wait for some government uh, Superman to come and rescue us. We got to find and be proximate to local leaders who, despite all of what we may see on TV, they see hope. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode, we're bringing you a session from our recent Poverty Cure Summit, a conversation entitled Hope for the City, Neighborhoods, Commerce, and Social Capital, featuring Rachel Ferguson, Justin Bean, and Ishmael Hernandez. Acton's Biennial Poverty Cure Summit provides an opportunity for participants to listen to scholars, human service providers, and community leaders address the most critical issues we face today that can either exacerbate or alleviate poverty. Rooted in foundational principles of anthropology, politics, natural law, and economics, participants gained a deeper understanding of the root causes of poverty and identified practical means to reduce it and promote human flourishing. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. My name is Michael Matheson Miller, and I'm a senior research fellow here at the Acton Institute. And on behalf of the Acton Institute, it's my uh, pleasure to welcome you back to uh, the next live panel uh, at the Poverty Cure Summit 2022. For those of you just joining us uh, here in studio or online, uh, at the center of the idea of Poverty Cure, this project, is that the human person must be at the center of the economy. And often when we think about poverty, uh, we, we can tend to treat poor people as if they are objects, objects of our pity, objects of our charity, or objects of our compassion. But each human person is not an object. We are subjects, unique, unrepeatable subjects. And the person should be the protagonist of his or her own story of development. And so we've had a panel earlier today on inflation. Uh, that got quite technical, I understand. We had another panel on Muslim charity. And our next panel is on neighborhood stabilization. And I think you're going to really like the, this panel. We have some incredible speakers here. And so it's my uh, pleasure to introduce the moderator of this panel is Dr. Rachel Ferguson. She is a professor at Concordia University in Chicago. She's the author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace and is involved in a neighborhood stabilization project called Love the Lou, which I think you'll hear about. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thanks, Michael. Well, welcome to all of you, both in person and online. Uh, for those of you who are online, don't forget to engage in the chat. I'll be able to ask some of your questions later. I wanted to start out by introducing you to Justin Bean and Ismail Hernandez, who are both neighborhood stabilization practitioners. But rather than read a boring bio, I thought I would let them tell you about what their organizations do, what they do in them, and how they got into the whole project of neighborhood stabilization. So why don't we start with you, Ismail? 
Yes, well, uh, I will say I'm the director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, and how I got into this, this work started long ago. I, I came to America as a communist. Uh, I came to the University of Southern Mississippi, of all places, as a, after I, I, left, I left Jesuit seminary where I was a student to be a, a priest, so I am a recovering Jesuit. Uh, I, I was going to go to Sandinista, Nicaragua to study philosophy. I, that didn't happen because seven Jesuits were murdered in El Salvador in 1986 and they wanted to send me to Fordham here in the United States, and I told them, you know, I hate America. I'm not going to the gods of the monster. But eventually I came to America, and that's when I say that things began to change in my life, because I was, I was confronted with a new way of being human. And I think that that is what the Freedom and Virtue Institute is all about, and why the, the question of poverty has to be treated as, as what it means to be a human being. Not seeing people as mouths to be fed, bodies to be clothed, and problems to be solved, but unique and repeatable persons made in the image and likeness of God with the moral capacity of self-realization, that they can change their lives by the choices they make. And if we deny that, we deny their dignity. And, and uh, that was contrasted with my understanding as a Marxist. I was a, a drop in a great wave. Uh, the wave had dignity. I, I, within the wave, I had meaning and purpose. As outside of that wave, I was nothing. I was a curious accumulation of atoms destined to nothingness when I died. And, and uh, that changed for me. And I began the Freedom and Virtue Institute after learning about the Acton Institute to challenge these paternalistic and condescending ways of treating the poor that many times see the poor as we see our pets. You know, the pet is there, you put the bowl of food, the pet comes, you pat the bed in the, on the head, you may feel good about it, and you do it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And again, that's disrespectful of the poor. So we do training on effective compassion for churches and nonprofits all over the United States, helping churches to, to challenge that false anthropology that sees these transactional systems as the way of helping the poor. We also have a program, is called the Self-Reliance Clubs, and now we are in, in three continents. We have about 10,000 students involved in, in the Self-Reliance Clubs. I can talk later about the clubs. And we finally, we have a new program, we call it Commonality Training which is an alternative to diversity training. We don't think that diversity training works. And we are offering a new alternative that is centered on what we have in common, not what makes us different from each other. Okay. Justin? Yeah, well, glad to be here. Um, uh, this is my hometown, so I'm born and raised in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we're located. and. Um, I grew up in the city uh, not far from here in a, in a poor neighborhood uh, in the 80s. And uh, my dad, who's African-American, was one of 12 kids, uh, son of a Pentecostal pastor. Uh, my mom was white, grew up in the Christian Reformed Church to a, um, to a father who owned a company and was successful. And so they got married, and uh, we lived in this poor neighborhood. I was one of uh, five kids. Um, 
And so growing up poor, I was the recipient of a lot of social services, of food truck lines, of going to the Medicaid or Department of Health and Human Services. Um, at the same time, I got the opportunity to go to private Christian schools because my grandparents paid for us to go. And I got to go on yachts on Lake Michigan. And I always had this disintegrated way of being in which I didn't all the way fit into uh, the black community or the white community. Um, I didn't understand this, this disconnect between uh, churches and, and, and business or nonprofit and for-profit um, or the, the racial or uh, economic um, separation that uh, was so prevalent, is so prevalent in this context and context all over the world. And so it really led me on this journey of um, what am I ought to do with this disintegrated self um, that was deeply yearning to kind of create places where there was human flourishing. Um, and so started in social work and then went to seminary and then found myself in Guatemala City uh, studying best practices around um, cross-sectoral solutions to change a global city. And so I came back to Grand Rapids in uh, 2014 after almost a year in Guatemala City uh, where I was learning from lots of grassroots leaders and business leaders who were doing all kinds of interesting things and uh, found this organization, uh, really a collaborative, called the Grand Rapids Center for Community Transformation. And so it's a, a collaborative of three nonprofits and three for-profits who are really working together for the flourishing of the city. And it's, uh, you know, there's a, a historical white institution, uh, Bethany Christian Services, and a historical black institution in the uh, Greater Grand Rapids branch of the NAACP um, with businesses all co-located trying to do something. And so, you know, we say part of this transformation is like partnering with people like us, not like us, and maybe who don't like us, and trying to create uh, really a platform, an ecosystem in which you can have real dialogue, you can learn from one another and actually do something uh, that accomplishes something more than what you'd be able to accomplish on your own. And so we have a, um, a lot of kind of development opportunities for young people in terms of vocational training and GED completion um, and, and, and job placement. Um, we also run a small restaurant, uh, event space, uh, we have a landscape and construction company. Um, but all of them are connected on this idea of, um, of human flourishing, uh, economic vitality, wealth creation, I would say, as well as this deeper sense of belonging, that um, how do we create the right spaces in which um, people can be their authentic selves? Uh, and that's a long process. We're now more of a platform where we say we don't, we don't do everything, uh, but this, we have created the right soil, the right kind of rich soil, that whatever you plant there can begin to flourish. Other ideas can come and clash with ours, and we can learn from one another and start new things, new innovative ideas and scale them that really allow us to be able to do something uh, unique in this context as well as context uh, elsewhere. Um, over the past six months, in part, I think, because of some of the success, uh, I've been able to work with a number of other um, philanthropists and business owners in Grand Rapids that are also really saying, how might we change the way that we invest mm. in our city? What, there's, there's a lot that hasn't been working, but how can we begin to have a new paradigm uh, in which we can do something uniquely different? Uh, and so uh, I'm spending my time now working with a lot of business leaders, nonprofit leaders, and government leaders on how does this new framework and strategy actually uh, get feed to it? So. I think in my case, uh, you know, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, born and bred, and my father was a minister uh, who had 
inner city ministry coming out of our church to one of the toughest streets in St. Louis, Theodosia Avenue. And I was down there every Thursday night picking up kids and we were doing Bible study and basketball. Um, and I think I picked up two things, which is that whatever the government was doing in terms of um, social services or, or uh, welfare support wasn't transforming anything. It wasn't working. But also what we were doing wasn't really either. Mm. Um, it made a difference here and there. It definitely did. I had inner city foster brothers. I think it made their lives better than they would have been otherwise. But it wasn't allowing people to genuinely emerge from poverty. And so as uh, an academic, I went on to study social and political philosophy. And in the back of my mind all the time, I'm thinking about, quite frankly, the black American male. Um, because that's who my foster brothers were. They were the ones who were caught up in the criminal justice system. I saw their trauma up close um, from loss of family structure. Um, I saw the pull of the neighborhood, you know, in terms of what replaces family. Sometimes it's, it's gangs, right? Because everybody needs family. Everybody needs a sense of belonging. And so I was so thrilled when I met, I've been very influenced by Acton Institute, by people like Robert Lupton, who wrote Toxic Charity, by, um, John Perkins, Bob Woodson, Brian Fickert, right? I call them the prophets of neighborhood stabilization. Um, I was influenced them intellectually, by them intellectually, but when I met Lucas Rugley of Love the Lou, I thought, oh, he, he's the Bob Lupton of St. Louis. Um, block by block, hyper-local personal presence, long-term commitment, eight to 10 years per block. And Enright Boulevard is now stabilized in St. Louis, which means that 95% of the kids that come through that program are not ending up where they would have been. They're in jobs, they're in college, they're going on to a totally different kind of life than they would have otherwise had. Not because there was some program that they went to for a week, <laughs> right, that was somewhere else, but because someone came to them, started gardens on their street, lived with them for years um, at a time, offered them employment, walked through the difficulties of life with them, including not just how to get the job, but how to keep it when your boss is a jerk, right? How to get the driver's license, how to get the car. You know, it's, it's just walking through life with people and surrounding them, bringing the resources into the neighborhood. And so as a political philosopher, one of the things I think about is the way that our history of financial exclusion has isolated our poor communities. I call it network poverty. And so we have a kind of network poverty, which means that in our neighborhood stabilization efforts, what we need to do is make our networks available to people who otherwise would not have access to them. Um, but we're doing that not through um, something high level, right? But by being right down on the street level with our neighbors. And um, man, could I tell you guys some wonderful stories <laughs> about some of the kids in Love the Lou. Um, maybe I will at some point, but that's, that's Love the Lou and, and they make an appearance in my book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, uh, as I discuss neighborhood stabilization as I think one of the most important solutions for poverty today. So, um, so for our first question, I want to ask, you know, look, right, there are so many nonprofits. I think St. Louis, Missouri has 16,000 nonprofits. Um, our churches are all trying to make a difference, right? We're making a lot of effort and we're holding a lot of charity, you know, events. What are we doing wrong? Why is it the case that in so many of our very destabilized neighborhoods, uh, and maybe in our rural areas too, we're not really transforming anything. So we're, we're affecting someone in a short-term sense, but we're not seeing that 
long-term transformation. What are our churches and nonprofits getting wrong? Well, I will say the first thing that happens is that we begin to imitate the bureaucratic ways of the state. So, so many nonprofits become another state agency, basically. Uh, they may have a cross on, on the front of the building, a name may say a Christian name, or, but the reality is that because the money is coming from the state, so the inclination is to follow the, the, the processes that the state dictates. And many times we become poverty managers. You know, we, we manage people's poverty, more or less keeping them well-fed, but still dependent on these structures. It's all about programs, about structures. I remember starting a, a, an association of pastors in, in uh, Fort Myers, Florida, many years ago, trying to change that. And the first thing that they asked me was, what grants are there available in the state so we can go after that money? So what were we going to do, whatever the grant says we are supposed to do? So we, we don't follow principles. We don't follow a, a baseline of principles upon which human action and effort follows. So we start with the heart, we feel sorry for, for the, the poor, and we go into, into motion, we go into action, and we need resources for action. But we never sit down to, to think about what, what are the authentic needs of the poor. And we followed, again, these bureaucratic ways of the state. And bureaucracy is nothing more than the normal human tendency for simplicity. When things are too complicated, we try to simplify, don't we? Yeah. And when we try to simplify, we focus on very depersonalizing uh, elements. Because you know, if you are trying to help 50,000 people, you're not going to see them as unique and unrepeatable persons made in the image and likeness of God. It's impossible. So what we try to do is to narrow the criteria to something that is common to all your clients. Right there, you are losing the perspective of the uniqueness of the person or what that person really needs. So the second thing that we do is, what are the needs? Well, I, I don't know what are your existential needs, and that's too complicated. Don't tell me about your existential needs. Mm. But I know that you need food. I know that you need clothing. So we, try, we gravitate towards these very biologistic efforts and become very transactional, just as the state does. We, we are here with the stuff. The poor are there without it. And tomorrow, the, the stuff is, is in their hands. We, so we don't see them as capable, but as, as, as people that we, we take care of, not as, as capable people. And it's not, it's not, a, it's not intentional. It's the, the way that the whole system is structured. So these pastors, eventually, the whole system crumbled because they were more focused on, on the funding and what to do and knowing who we are and who are those we are trying to serve. What, what, are, what is a human being? That's, that question is never coming to, 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 to those who are trying to serve or, or seldom comes. The first thing that we ask is, what are we going to do? Not who we are and who are mm -hmm. those we are trying to serve. Good. Mm -hmm. Justin? 
Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm thinking about like my own um, context and um, Grand Rapids, Greater Grand Rapids is one of the kind of most philanthropic communities um, in the country. And so I saw a statistic, I think it was back in 2014, but uh, it's almost a billion dollars in Kent County is given away philanthropically, which is a enormous amount of money uh, that that could do a lot more good uh, than it currently is. And mm -hmm. at the same time, what do you think um, the impact, you know, the, the, the hundred billion dollars of GDP? And what's the impact that that could do? So one of the kind of, before I'll try to answer the question specific to social services, is oftentimes we look to philanthropy to solve the social and economic problems instead of looking to business. Mm. So I think for, for us, a lot of our work is around, let, we, we got to start and scale businesses and use business and do workforce development and connect it to local employers because that's where people move out of poverty. It's, there, there is no program that's going to uh, kind of solve the economic challenge. So I, I think, uh, unfortunately, we've looked at economic issues and tried to solve them with social and spiritual means mm -hmm. through the church and through the nonprofit when really we should be looking to well-run businesses to really make those um, partnerships. At the same time, I do think there's a lot more that uh, the social service sector, philanthropy and nonprofits um, could do. Again, in, in my context, there's, there's 900 churches and 2,800 nonprofits. And so you can have a really good idea um, that you think but you can, and have good relationships and get it funded, but then the impact doesn't happen, right? Um, and so I think, unfortunately, businesses don't or, or nonprofits don't have the same kind of uh, rigor and kind of key performance in, uh, indicators that you might see in a business that hey, in a, in a year or two, if you're not, if something's not moving, let's shut, let's shut it down. Mm. But because it pulls on our hearts, we'll just keep giving to this thing that kind of makes us feel good. Mm. And so we've tried to increasingly get better of like, let's start something. If it doesn't work, kill it. Mm. Right. And we got all these kind of sacred cows in our churches and our nonprofits that we hold on to these legacy programs that are super ineffective for actually trying to move the needle on the thing that we're uh, we originally set out to do. And so a lot of those incentives in the, the kind of nonprofit space are really twisted, right? We're, I don't know if we're incentivized to actually work ourselves out of business, right? So, so somebody had their 100-year-old uh, gala here, right? And, and I had a friend who said, if they're celebrating 100 years, <laughs> and the problem's worse, Shouldn't we be <laughs> saying, you know, this is our last year, 100 years and we're, you know, we're done. It hasn't worked. Uh, right. And so how do we begin to think differently about our work that we shouldn't always want to expand? We shouldn't start every grant proposal with the needs assessment. Uh, we got to begin having an asset based lens that says, what are the assets in our community that we can build on? What are the connections and relationships that we need to scale up instead of looking at the deficits in which the program somehow solves? It's, 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 it's called the principle of exit that every program has to have a, a, a beginning and, it's, and a heart's end and then evaluation. And again, we, we imitate the bureaucratic ways of the state that tends to be forever. You know? No, a beginning, 
and an end. Many times, you know, you have a, a ministry where sister so-and-so has been doing this program for 30 years, and no one will touch sister so-and-so. <laughs> no one will tell her that this doesn't work. And it's because, again, we have this idea that as long as we are doing something, we can create the illusion of success if a set of stuff is passes hands. That gives us the illusion that something is being done when in reality we are, we, we are breathing poor people. I, I always say, you know, you have a food distribution program for your program budget to grow, what do you need? More hungry people or less hungry people? Mm -hmm. You need more hungry people. So the way we structure the program perpetuates the, the problem because we, we exist because the problem exists. And again, it's because we start with the answer. No, we don't start at the, what does it mean to be a human being? What is it that makes you flourish in the morning, wake up, and ready to engage reality and existence? Instead of looking at what is poverty, how are we going to meet your needs? You know, I'm not interested in your poverty. I am interested in you. Mm. You know, I, I want to see you flourish. Because when that happens, the poverty will be taken care of. So we need to look at the, not at the problem first, then our program, and at the end we look at the eyes of the poor. Mm. It has to be the other way around. And when we change the narrative of how we attend poverty, we begin to find answers. Yeah, let me just add another quick thought that um, I think back to the economic way of thinking around this is, um, and, and maybe I'm overly crass in saying, sometimes I think that the, the best thing that a nonprofit can do is actually hire people from the neighborhood and procure services from local businesses in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Like that, like, and not to say that they don't do other good, but um, Ray Bakke actually in the 80s did this study kind of in Chicago where he kind of drew this line around a neighborhood. And he looked at all of the federal, state, local resources going in to fix these problems of education, of crime, of whatever, of hunger. And, and then really found out that as you look at all these resources coming from outside of that neighborhood coming in, most of those resources on some nonprofit or church program budget go to staffing. And, and the majority of the people who worked in that community lived outside of the community. Right. Right. So the money comes in and then it goes out in a paycheck and then they bank. They have their mortgage. They procure services. They go grocery shopping. They invest all outside of that neighborhood. Right. And so the, to the extent that from a neighborhood lens, you can hire people from the neighborhood, procure services from the neighborhood, and create a local economy within that neighborhood, that's how you're going to be able to see impact. I don't think that most churches want to come and help or nonprofits that want to do something never really look at who are you, who are you purchasing from? Yeah. Who are you hiring? Who are you developing? Um, and I think that's like a, that's an easy way to begin making progress of uh, how do you use your resources? They're a, they're a picture of what you value. There's the classic Robert Lupton story, which to me is just sort of the perfect crystallization of what you two just said, which was his moment of realization in Atlanta, where he came into a house to deliver a Christmas shoebox. 
and he said he just was sort of, for one moment, his eyes were kind of open and he was actually observing what was happening. He said, of course, the kids were excited about the presents. The mom was tolerating him because it was good for her kids, and the dad was out the back door. He had totally undermined the dignity of that dad. And he thought, what am I doing? He had like this realization. So then the next year, he worked coming up to Christmas to open a Christmas store, right? And now the discounted uh, items could be sold so that people are actually buying their children's presents. And they're actually running the store because as he got ready to do it, a lot of the women in the neighborhood were like, I want to be the cashier. I want to make cookies for the store. They started, they actually spun off a pie business, I think, off of that store because they were selling pies and cookies in the store. And so now they're being trained, right? And they're gaining skills. Parents are buying presents themselves, wrapping them themselves, and giving them themselves to their kids. And that's just the little spark, right, that set off focus community strategies in Atlanta. And uh, I just visited their grocery store and cafe a few weeks ago. It was wonderful to see. So that is such an amazing point about just simply uh, exchanging with the people in the neighborhood. They are subjects of exchange, not just mere recipients. And Love the Lou does that. So many of our staff members are the anchors of the neighborhood. They're what Lucas calls persons of peace. And that's who we hire. Uh, to do the work we want to do. So that's just wonderful. Now, we've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but can we really give kind of bullet points for what are the major components of doing it right? So we've talked about doing it wrong. <laughs> what are the major components of doing it right? Yes. Um, you said some of those things, yes. but, but let's make sure we've covered them all. Well, in the Freedom and Virtue Institute, we created what we call the human flourishing model that says that every program has to be simple, practical, personal, and replicable. And replicable means that eventually you can get out of the way. And the community itself can pick it up with, from there mm -hmm. and move themselves the program where they want to go with that program. Mm -hmm. So the is that we had this arrogance that we are absolutely necessary, you know, that we had to be there forever, and it's paternalistic and condescending. It's the same as the structures of the state, that how can we survive without the state intervention? How can these people survive without us? We do exactly the same thing. Let me very briefly tell you about the, the Self-Reliance Club that we started as an example. Nine years ago, I went to a free distribution of school supplies, you know, where a sea of black and brown kids getting the free, cheap school supplies from a small group of white people. <laughs> and I, when I saw that, everyone was celebrating. Well, I was fuming. I said, you know, <laughs> number one, why is always us in the receiving end? Why? It's better in the, give, in the giving end. It feels better when you are in the giving end. It doesn't have to be this way. And number two, I asked myself, what are these kids learning? They were learning that there is benefit at the end of the long lines of dependency. Mm. That I stand in line and those strangers who I'm being told that because they are white, they are the enemy, they have the good stuff. So I smile at them and get my stuff and they give more and more and more. So we perpetuate this idea that this is the normal way of meeting human needs. But the kids need school supplies, don't they? The, the, the need is, is real. So we thought, why don't we make them work for it? 
why don't we give them the gift of work? So we started one club in one all-black school. The kids would join the club at the beginning of the year, so we have a relationship with them. It's not like, here's the stuff at the ra-ra-ra event during the summer, and I don't see that child again, I, but I get, I get them stuff. I feel good about it, and I think that everything is okay. No, we have a relationship with them, and they become entrepreneurs at the school site. We don't even invent new activities. We transform existing activities in the school that have entrepreneurial potential. The arts class are, are many of our clubs. The kids are creating wealth in the arts class every day and they don't realize it. Mm. You know? Some of them are garden clubs that we call them farming clubs because that conveys the idea of wealth creation. Gardening is a hobby. The kids create products. We put together young entrepreneurs fairs. The kids sell their products. And at the end of the school year, we had this beautiful uh, field trip to a bank where we hand them their earnings for the year. They open their own bank account, and now they buy their own school supplies. You see? Yeah. So the, the need was met with them as protagonists of their story, not as, and us as scenery in the drama of their lives well lived. Mm -hmm. And now the need was met by themselves, not by us. So this. Why saviorism can be avoided when we, we surrender the temptation of protagonism and let the poor themselves become the protagonists of their own stories. Yeah, there's so much I could speak to. I mean, I think it's a, like this idea of lifelong learning in the space. Um, there's always new light bulbs going off for me. Um, but I, I think proximity does matter. Um, being proximate to people in material poverty um, is something that I can't really, you know, overstate. Um, so for me, growing up in a neighborhood, moving out, and then moving back in, uh, and letting the, the problems of the neighborhood be mine, right? Like when I hear the gunshots at night and I'm the one going and calling the police and figuring out when my kids are going to the school that's wrestling with these issues and finding out how difficult it is and then having to make a decision, am I gonna keep my kids in this school or am I gonna take them out and send them to private schools? Which I did. But, but I'm, and I have to wrestle with that uh, and do it really openly so that people can kind of learn from that experience. I think there's some other principles as well that we've tapped into, and I'm part of a, a global network of folks who have been wrestling with this. One is a group called Street Psalms, about 50 cities all over the world that have been wrestling with this. And we've come up with this um, kind of training framework or formation framework called the Incarnational Training Framework. And there's these paradigm shifts that we talk about are really necessary to see neighborhood or city transformation. And one of them is really moving from this kind of um, idea of scarcity to one of abundance. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have a lens that says that there just is enough. There's enough in your community. There's enough in your city. We can't wait for some government uh, superman to come and rescue us. We got to find and be proximate to local leaders who, despite all of what we may see on TV, they see hope. And they're working towards that. And how do we get on that bandwagon? Um, the second is really our, our posturing. And it's how do we begin to move from rivalry and competition amongst nonprofits or competition mm -hmm. in business to one that's really a posture of peacemaking. And I think that's both an individual posture of I, I'm, I don't have to be threatened by someone else who's doing really good work, 
Um, but that there's restoration that can happen. There's learning that can happen. And how do you have a posture of collaboration? And then finally, it is one that's um, moving from the like, theory from above to one to incarnational practice. And really saying that, um, that Jesus modeled that for us of kind of moving into the neighborhood. We, and we gotta, that's back to the, we gotta be present. So ultimately, we, we move from this idea of being afraid to jump in and try new things to one where there's freedom. That even in the midst of what feels really chaotic and fearful, um, you can be established in what you're doing and feel free to really uh, love your city into greatness was um, kind of a term I use. So those are some, some, I would say, paradigm shifts that I've seen are, are necessary um, that folks have to kind of go through. Did you want to jump in? Just, just, this may be controversial, but I believe that we need to say no to government funding. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we cannot become the hard hand of the state. Uh, we have to become faithful Christians, faithful believers, present among the poor. And whatever we have, we suffer with the poor. That's what compassion means, to suffer with the poor. It's not to alleviate the suffering of the poor, necessarily. It's to suffer with them. And many nonprofits are not willing to suffer. That's why they want their government's money. So we, whatever is bestowed by God's grace in our hands, we share it with the poor, we suffer, and we journey with them in, in, in this journey. 70% of Catholics, of the budget of Catholic charities, I'm Catholic, it comes from the government. Uh, and I can go from one to the other to the other denominational structures that are government funding. Who is in charge of Catholic charities? The bishops think they are, you know? No, they are not. They, are, they have surrendered that for the, for the money. So the key is to help people the right way, not, not how many people you can help. And when nonprofits have that attitude, if we can help 10 people authentically, as you said, in this connection, in this bonding with the poor, where we can get to know them as authentic, have an authentic friendship with the poor, we begin to see ourselves out of this, of this mess. But as long as we continue to receive this money from the government, we will continue to surrender our principles for Ferris money. You know, on this topic of personal presence, um, I've really learned over the years with Love the Lou that that isolation that I was talking about can even be four or six blocks, right? Because you have a competing gang, right, on that side of the, mm -hmm. that other side of the street. And so there can be a sense of, opportunities that you and I know exist, maybe just a few miles away, can feel like they're on the other side of the world Same. to people. <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, you try to say to kids, oh, there are corporations that would pay for you to go to college, and they're looking at you like, you're, <laughs> you might as well be speaking Klingon, you know? And so when Lucas moved into the neighborhood, when he started the community garden, when he started hiring, right, the neighbors to work in the garden, it brought the reality to someone's real life. And so I wanted to back up your point about proximity and personal presence, because now you're walking down the street on a Saturday morning and you think, could I get a job in the garden? I need a job. 
right? And now you're talking and now you're getting to know one another. And now you're having that personal relationship that's not faceless, which I think backs up Ismail's point mm. about taking government funding. Mm -hmm. The one thing you can say for government funding is that it's faceless, mm -hmm. right? It has to be. That's, it has to be by nature. Mm -hmm. And what people need is to be seen, right? They need to actually be seen for who they are as an individual. And so saying no to that other paradigm and being able to just work with complicated people, right? It's complicated. And, and walk through life with people, that's, that's the key. So um, that's just wonderful. Thank you, guys. Let me, can I just... Yeah, go ahead. Point. I mean, on the government funding, I mean, each context is different. I, I think there's good money and there's, there's bad money. Um, and that it, that's not we can't relegate that only to governments. Um, there's bad foundation money. There's yep. bad business money. <laughs> yeah. And and most money has some a string attached to it. Yes. Um, so I think just for us, we there's certain contracts that, that we and we call them contracts. We don't call them grants. There's a contract. There's an obligation to deliver something. But we do vet it through a process of can the dollar outlive the two or three year programmatic budget? Can we use some of the money to purchase local services from a business? Can we, I mean, everybody utilizes government funds for your roads, for your schools. For, so I think having a lens that allows you ask really tough questions is necessary, but I would say that's, a, that's across wherever the dollars come from and try to think through how can they outlive the grant period, right? To, to Let it point, be invested in To a point I will agree with you, you know, that we use the principle of subsidiarity too. Sometimes the local government has some funding there that, and, and these are the people making decisions that live in these same neighborhoods. They, they know the reality of your, of your neighborhood. But I remember when I used to work for Catholic Charities, we got some funding from the federal government, and all I needed was a good friend in government and a good grant writer. Yeah. That's it. You know? They never came to see what we were doing. They read papers that we submitted. That's it. They read papers. But local, local government has a responsibility. So we use the principle of subsidiarity. Those who are closer to the, the need have a better understanding of that need and may attend that need properly. So I agree with you. I have known nonprofits who don't receive any government money and are desperate of trying to get it. They are going in the wrong direction. And those who are getting government funding and are making a sincere effort to substitute that money, if it's possible, they are going in the right direction. Good. Um, so a lot of these organizations that we're talking about that have this genuinely transformative approach uh, for the community are decentralized. So they're small, they belong in that block, that city. So how do we find them? We may be someone who wants to be involved with them. We may be someone who wants to donate to them uh, or, or perhaps with our business, right? Work with the businesses that are in that neighborhood. How do we find them? If they don't exist in our area, how do we start them? Or how do we take what we're doing and transform what we're already doing? And, and I'll just add kind of to the to bookend your, your like little debate that we just had here about funding. <laughs> mm -hmm. I remember um, having Robert Lupton out to my campus and someone said to him, you know, isn't the problem really the welfare state? And talk about controversial, get what he said. <laughs> he said, no. The churches, if the churches are doing exactly the same undignifying kind of model, mm -hmm. then how can they blame the state? Yeah. The churches need to show the way. 
right? The churches need to be the transformative ones. Yes. And so I thought that was a fascinating answer. It took me a couple of years to like totally let it sink in. But, <laughs> but in the meantime, we have those sorts of efforts. How can we transform them? How can we find them? How can we start them? That's a, three questions in one. <laughs> so pick whichever one you want. Well, I agree with him in the sense that because we have surrendered our responsibility towards each other, someone had to come and pick up on that responsibility. And, 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 and it is the, the entity or the community that is the least appropriate to, to deal with, with that problem, and that is the state. But, but we cannot blame the state simply because we have surrendered that responsibility. Uh, at the same time, that is not the answer. The state is not, is not the answer. So it, it is the, it's true that the state is not the, the community that, is, that can love people. But they are doing the best they can. You know, I remember the, uh, doing training with 70 social workers of a government agency years ago. And in the beginning, I, was, I, I thought they were going to burn me at the stake. But <laughs> no, that was the best training I ever did, because they realized that they were, they were tied by the bureaucratic, bureaucratic ways of the state, and they wanted to do more. And that made me realize that we have surrendered that responsibility, and the church has to come to the forefront of action in helping the poor. I always use the, the example of African-American community. You know, one, of my, one of the most wonderful things for me is to speak with older African-American men. Mm -hmm. And two things always come from those conversations. Number one, they hate the segregation. Who wouldn't? Hate segregation, you know? A society invested in the perpetuation of your second class status. But they told me a second thing that is very interesting is that they, they often tell me that they long for the days of segregation. And you know why? Because the little they had, they built it themselves. It was theirs. They worked hard and they suffered to create their own institutions. And, and there were two institutions that were the most important ones, the church mm -hmm. and the family. Mm -hmm. The church and the family. We need to strengthen the family. If the family is not strong, I don't care how many millions of dollars you're spending in poverty, we will not fix this. And the second was the church. But you will go to your pastor, and the pastor will tell you, you know, I'll help you, but I better see you on Sunday. You better stay in the straight and narrow. You better treat that woman right. In other words, there was always a moral expectation attached to the gift. And that kept the, the community poor but strong. But here comes the government commissar with a check in the hand. And now I am free because I have resources. I don't have to listen to my pastor. And I don't have to treat that woman right anymore. And the, society, the community got more resources, but weakened at the same time. Yeah, there's multiple questions in that. So a mm -hmm. couple things. Um, Lots of the organizations are small, I think, but there's power in uh, numbers and cross-sectoral um, mm -hmm. solutions. For, for us, in our context, it is connecting with businesses and nonprofits, getting them to co-locate with kind of a, a shared vision 
uh, a shared core values and a shared execution strategy that allows us to keep our own individual entity but move um, towards something much bigger than ourselves. And I had a, a mentor who, who said that. He said, you know, you should always join work that makes your work bigger. And I think that's been really helpful for me of saying, okay, we, I have my own thing. How do I collaborate with others? And then even on a citywide scale, and, and a network that I mentioned, Street Psalms, that's global, another one called Leadership Foundations that we've been a part of, that allows us to connect to people all over the world across sectors who are really seeking to do uh, similar things. I think when it comes to this idea of starting stuff, again, depends on the context. Um, it's really easy because we've been kind of trained at least in the U.S., to again see deficits, and so we think start a program to solve. And that, so like if you're in the U.S., don't start a new thing <laughs> um, unless it's a for-profit business. I would just stop the new nonprofits, go join somebody else, or help make it better. But I would say uh, from the business perspective, though, there's lots of ways to make businesses stronger, make businesses more transformative. I think we've lost a lot of the way where it's this, you know, maximize profit, but there's so much more you can do in a business with flexibility that isn't tied to government contracts, that in the profit you can reinvest, you can share with your employees, you can think about ESOPs or, you know, shared equity, whatever, um, to really continue to grow a, a business that meets a real need in the marketplace and also is beginning to you know measure how you're taking care of your people so for us in our businesses uh, we have a you know a, a quadruple bottom line that each of our business units is focused on people planet profit and purpose and so it's based on who we hire our profit share um, you know kind of the the pro bono give back that we do kind of how we um, try to take care and steward um, the environment all our kind of metrics that we put in place for the businesses that we start or partner with um, to really create more transformative impact with what we already have you are echoing what I often hear from Lucas, which is, uh, who founded Love the Lou, which is don't start any new nonprofits. That's not what we need. We need those businesses. And I'm also thinking of just to throw a, another little uh, nugget out. I'm thinking of a lot of men in church who are business people who have all kinds of skills, um, lawyers, accountants, etc. And when they come into our churches, we ask them to be a greeter or write a check, <laughs> right? But are we asking them to take that skill set that they have in the marketplace and mentor an inner city entrepreneur, help somebody learn QuickBooks, help somebody get through you know, the regulatory hurdles of starting their businesses, right? Something that would, I think, really bring a lot of these men alive. And I'm kind of saying men, it's women too, of course, who can do this. But I know that churches tend to have more women and oftentimes we wonder why men don't come to church. And I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons is because we don't ever talk to them about what they do from Monday through Friday. Yeah. And, and we're certainly not necessarily um, asking them to bring it to bear on the kingdom of God. Right. And so I think we're missing some, another lesson I've learned from Love the Lou is that it's, it's not just about what resources and networks we can bring into the community, but it's about what we learn from the community right. and what we're missing out on because we're not exchanging with members of the community. And there's a lot that we're missing out on. I think that's one example right there. 
I, I, do, I do believe that, that we don't need more programs. There are plenty of, as you said, 16,000 uh, non-profits. In, in, in St. Louis. Don't, you don't need 16,001. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Just, but how are we going to use our resources, both our volunteer work and our financial resources, and place them in the right place? And that's what I believe in collaborations like Poverty Cure, that, that targets and, and, and helps us know of these organizations that are better doing the better work. And then you can put your resources in those that are doing the, 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 the most good in the community. And I also believe in training. We need to train and help organizations that are already working with the poor in this, to discover a new set of values and principles. Uh, we have a training, but there are others uh, through charity and other trainings mm -hmm. out there. And uh, doing this training, I realized that how people awaken to a new understanding of things that for you and me may seem so simple or so obvious, and people on the ground had never heard of a different way of meeting human needs than just giving mm -hmm. them the bag of food. And when you train them and you help them realize that there may be a better way, and then you work with them to begin to change the way they do uh, their programs from a transactional system to a more human flourishing system, then we have a better outcome at the end. So training to me is, is, is key. Absolutely. We have some questions from the audience. So let's take one in audience and then I'll do some online. Go ahead. Thank you very much. This has been wonderful. I have a very practical question. Um, for those of us who have small businesses or entrepreneurs, how do we actually meet up with people in cities? I've tried. I haven't been very successful. Um, I know there are people who do what I do much better than what I do, and I would like to meet them. Um, how, practically, how would someone like me go about finding the people who are looking for opportunity. Mm. Thank you. I'm going to kick that one to you, Justin. <laughs> are, you, are you in Grand Rapids? Yeah. I live up in Sand Lake. So okay. So 30 minutes outside of Grand Rapids. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots happening, I think, in, in every city. And, um, you know, I, personally, I can chat with you afterwards about some stuff that we're doing. Um, I, for, for me, when I didn't see the spaces that I felt the most comfortable in, which were cross-racial, cross-socioeconomic status, um, I started creating them. And so, you know, I would encourage folks, yeah, do all you can to uncover what does exist. But if it doesn't exist, you don't have to create a program or a new nonprofit, but start hosting people in your home. I mean, that's one thing that I just, I just started once I moved into the neighborhood and I started bringing people into my home to experience who walked by and, and how I interacted or how I greeted with them. Um, me and a local CEO of a, uh, a larger company said, Gosh, Justin, when I come to your events, it's like all black and brown people. And when you come to mine, it's mostly white. Let's do this thing together. Mm. And so we threw a party at his house that we said, we called it cross-pollination. And we said, this is not a networking event. This is a relationship building event. So we, we, we prefaced the conversation with, um, don't ask people what they do. Ask them what, what gets them up in the morning. 
ask them what, what they're passionate about. What do they love about their city? And so we've done that twice now, and we just do a short survey that we're more than willing to share that has said, hey, every time the average number of new people that, that those folks that come, it's, it's 12 to 15 people, and we encourage them to exchange information and set up a, a separate meeting to go and meet and talk to them. So that would be my kind of quick thoughts. That's excellent. This first question from online, I get a lot. This is an important one. How is neighborhood stabilization distinct from gentrification? And I can speak a little yeah, bit to that. Oh, okay, I'll start. <laughs> you, know, you guys can contemplate while I start. But not to keep talking about Robert Lupton. He's just the person who keeps coming to mind. But he, um, he has a phrase, actually, in his second book, uh, Charity Detox, which is such a great follow-up to mm -hmm. <laughs> Toxic Charity. Uh, <laughs> Charity Detox. And he uses the phrase gentrification with justice. And his idea there is that we actually do need multi-income neighborhoods because people need, people who do not have employment networks need to be around people who do have employment networks. Um, but the problem is with gentrification is that as people come in and move in, you know, to the make it hip, right, make the neighborhood hip, uh, the property values go up and people's rents go up, right, and so they're, the people who were originally in the neighborhood are pushed out. So Lupton did a couple of things. One is that he went to the legislature and asked them to, uh, to cap the property taxes uh, so that people wouldn't be taxed out of the neighborhood. But more fundamentally, his church actually acted as a bank in order to get as many of the most stable sort of anchors of the neighborhood into home ownership as possible so that they actually owned their homes and they wouldn't be taxed out of those homes. Um, as opposed to be paying rent where you might get, yep. you know, get priced out. And then, of course, you're building real wealth, right? And yep. so as people's incomes are going up because they actually are skills building and, and business building, they can afford those higher rents as well. But anyway, so that's a little tidbit of what I'd say. How about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's time to be innovative and creative. Um, there's a couple things we're working on um, locally. Is, is one is um, if you're not, if you don't have a net worth of a million dollars, then you are left out of kind of SEC uh, dealings for commercial real estate, right? So if you're a local person living in a neighborhood and a commercial real estate developer buy some property, you can't be an investor in it because you're too high risk, right? Mm -hmm. But a couple years ago, there was new policy that came in place that allows for some crowdfunding to raise money um, from mm -hmm. a local neighborhood that you could then pool resources so that the group could be a, a larger equity holder in a commercial real estate deal. So we're kind of beginning to work on that um, here locally. And we're thinking about the same thing for, you know, you could start with kind of 10 homes, right? Where mm -hmm. Um, everyone doesn't want to own a home, right? If you're a single mom and you make good money, but you say, I would rather not, you know, participate in the maintenance of that home. Um, well, wonder if we created a, you know, a, a S corp where you could be an equity holder in which you kind of, your rent went to increase your level of equity in your home, but you still didn't own the home. You're just a part owner in the company, right? Mm. So I think, how do we start thinking of new creative ways of creating wealth and stabilizing neighborhoods instead of just the traditional ways of, you know, you got to own your home or you got to, like, I think there's some other ways that, and some of this stuff has to come from local ideation. So mm. I would think outside the box. One of the things we are doing, for example, in Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana, our, our organization is working with a, a local organization is called Fort Wayne United. And what we are doing is bringing to the 
to the table, to the table, to the same place. All kinds of people from the business community, the church community, the nonprofit community, the local philanthropists, pastors from the poor neighborhoods, from the more wealthy neighborhoods, simply in dialogue. We're not trying to do anything but to mm. get these people to know each other. And that's what happens sometimes is that we want, it, like the commercial, it's, it's my money and I want it now. You know, we, we want to fix things immediately. It doesn't work like that. But we are trying to create a place where people are going to know each other. And from those relationships will come all kinds of ideas and opportunities that we didn't know existed because we, we, we were strangers to each other. And we're going to take some time in, in doing this dialogue for, for a period of time and eventually go into more detailed questions on how we can begin to fix problems in the neighborhoods that, that need it the most. You know, your comment, Ismail, um, coalesces nicely with the last online question. Uh, much of the content of this panel, the person says, can be found in lots of books. We've been talking about it for, for 15 years, uh, yet most nonprofits proceed as usual. And they've, they've picked up on your phrase, the 100-year gala problem. Are we just stuck with the 100-year gala problem? And my own sense, we only have a couple minutes left, but my own sense is that actually the problem of toxic charity is fairly well known at this point. You even see Christian comedians joking about short-term mission trips and poverty tourism and things like that. It's, it's becoming almost uh, normal, right, to talk about that. The hard part is actually flipping yes. your model. Yes. That's the really hard part. And so that's the wall we're running up against, I think. Do you have hope? Are you frustrated? Where are you at in terms of actually getting us over the hump into a more effective model? So I would say it, it goes back to um, the locality and context. Um, something that we're now kind of coalescing is a group of businesses, nonprofit government leaders, to really try to go through a process that um, we would say kind of disrupts the current model, but also offers kind of an alternative. Right, where we're asking people to maybe allocate a certain portion of their philanthropy to this process where we can bubble up bottom-up ideas. And it's not a new nonprofit, it's a collaborative, but we're still kind of running it like an entrepreneurial um, business. And, and the hope is that as we make both for-profit and nonprofit investments, the outcomes are much better than the old model. And that more people will begin to join in building a platform where more people can join to invest in this new model instead of trying to convince people that they should, you know, stop having the 100-year gala. So, yeah. you know, and I, to be honest, some of it is we got we to gotta test and pilot new things, yeah. right? Um, I don't know if the next new model is here. We got to try some new stuff. But we, we have settled on what we currently have is broken. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Did you want to say anything no, else this month? I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. I started many years ago. I discovered Acton, and I decided to do something. And I started the Freedom and Virtue Institute because I discovered the Acton Institute, and they motivated me to go out there and make it happen. It's absolutely true. We can talk about it forever, but we need to make it happen, and it takes each one of us to make a choice to change our communities. Well, I think one of the most powerful things we can do is bring that training to our churches and see if we can, we can just help people to understand the, the uh, paradigm shift. As always, thank you for listening. 
Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.